So today we're going to jump into Luke chapter 7 and we're going to see what God has for us. This is an absolutely amazing text of Scripture. And I'm so thankful that we just sang that song because the truth of the matter is, is that uh, after studying this text this morning, there's not a person in this room that's not a, amazed at the way God loves us. No matter how firm a grip you think you have on the love of God, it, it just comes afresh and anew and you realize in utter amazement the God to which we serve. It is uh, just an amazing passage of Scripture. Luke chapter 7, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, you can find on the Pew Bible in front of you, page 1189. Where we are, Luke 7, we're going to begin in verse 36. This is really one of the most uh, vivid passages of Scripture that teach us about the character and nature of God. And the truth of the matter is, is that really churches all over America, certainly all over the world, are filled with people who really do not know the God to which they come to serve. I mean Christian churches. I mean they're filled with people. Filled with people who think they know Jesus. They don't know Jesus. And it's passages like this that just paint us a whole new picture of the, the God that we serve and the way that He responds to His people. And may it be so today that we come before this passage with honest hearts and allow the Lord to just, just do the work in us that needs to be done. Let's read together Luke chapter 7 beginning in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him, this is Jesus, to eat with him. So Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Verse 38. And she stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her, the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who lived there saw him, saw invited Jesus, the man that he had invited, he, he spoke to him saying, if this man, if, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon replied, Teacher, say it. Jesus said, There is a certain creditor who has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. And Jesus said to him, Well, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with Jesus began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Father, we come before this passage of Scripture. And Lord, I pray that as your people, we can receive it this morning. That it is for us. It's for every one of us in this room individually. And Lord, I pray that you will help us not to sit this morning and think about other people. Because Lord, this text is not about the people that aren't here today. It's not about the people who are sitting to the left of us or the right of us or in front of us or behind us. Lord, this is for us individually. Now help us, Lord, to resist the temptation to deflect what you have to say to us this morning. God, reveal yourself here. Do what only you can do. We ask you, Lord, that you'd be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, you read a passage like this and immediately a room gets quiet. It's just the nature of the passage. 
when it's dealing with such an intense moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so what I want us to do is just go through it and let's just break it down a little bit. I want to talk us through this story and then we'll uh, wrap up this morning by pulling some, some application to our own personal lives. Really, to understand the story, you have to back up to, to really to verse 34. Jesus, at the, at the, in the previous pericope, or I'm sorry, the passage before this, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's illustrating that people have received him like childish children. They, they, that he's come and preached the gospel and John the Baptist has come and preached the gospel of repentance and people like selfish children have sort of, sort of, uh, responded to him as the way they wanted to, like they play games. And so that's sort of what that passage oftentimes confused about before where it says we played a flute for you and you did not dance. That's what that's about. But notice in verse 34 what the Bible says. Jesus said, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, it's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, if we were just going to talk about that passage of Scripture this morning, that would just sort of roll right over us. I don't think anyone here would be astonished this morning if I stood up and made the statement, Jesus is a friend of sinners. We would probably amen that. We would affirm that. We would applaud that. But do we really understand what that means? Because when you and I begin to really grapple with what it means to be a friend of sinners, when you and I really realize the way Jesus interacted with people, it will make you feel uncomfortable. It's going to, it's going to press you because there's some of us in this room and we're Simons. And you know that. And I know that. And there's a few people in this room and, and you're this woman. But there's more Simons here this morning, I'm sure. See, you can, you can tell that just by looking around. And I'm one of you too. And my prayer is that you will honestly, from the depths of your heart, resist that it's, it's a strong temptation to just negate what the Bible is saying here. To push it aside and to pretend that He's not speaking to us But He is, I assure you. So let's look together. Let's see. This Pharisee, the Bible says in verse 36, then one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come and eat with him. And so Jesus responds and goes to his house and sat down to eat. Now, we don't know why this Pharisee, Simon, invited Jesus to his house. We don't have any indication why. And really, we don't need to know. I don't know if he was just curious about Jesus, if he wanted to know more about Jesus. But but undoubtedly, he's similar to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who came to Jesus by night, who was also a Pharisee. But here's what you need to understand. Pharisees were the religious elite They were the know-it-all people. There was only 6,000 of them, and they really set themselves up on a pedestal. And they they, they prided themselves on their ability to follow all the rules. And in fact, their ability to make up rules that aren't even in the Bible. Sounds a lot like a lot of churches I've been in. They just come up with things. They're not in the Bible, but they think they're good, and so they make them a rule, and then people start following them. And then what you find when you really get around those churches is those people really don't know what's in the Bible and what's not in the Bible. All they do is know the rules. That's what Pharisees do. That's what's going on here. The amazing thing to me is that the, the Jesus gave his harshest criticism his entire time on earth to the Pharisees. The Pharisees spent all of their time trying to kill Jesus. But yet when Simon comes to Jesus and invites him to his house, Jesus goes. Now, I understand that what's Jesus got to be afraid of? He's God. Nothing. But at the same time, we do need to just see this, this simple illustration that Jesus responds to the invitation of even a man with a heart as wicked and hard as this Simon that we'll see. Don't miss that point. He responds. And that, that to me is, is a very telling truth about our Savior. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 about these Pharisees, He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You're hypocrites. See, this was his biggest complaint about them, was their hypocrisy. He said, you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inwardly you're full of dead man's bones. Now, that's a nice thing to say, isn't it? He says, he goes on, he says, even even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
You see, the mark of a Pharisee is outward righteousness and inward depravity. And we must guard ourselves against the human condition that leads all of us to present ourselves on the outside as having it all together. But on the inside, we're like a tomb filled with rotting bones and flesh. So Jesus responds in verse 37. Now notice that Luke says, and behold, you might write in your Bible if you're saved, you can write above and behold, you can write, "Uh uh-oh, because that's what that means in the Greek. Luke is trying to call your attention to look out, get ready, because something's about to happen. Comma, a woman in the city who was a sinner. The reason why he says, "Uh uh-oh, is because here comes a prostitute into Simon's house where Jesus is. Uh Uh-oh. When she, when, when she went, she knew that Jesus was, was there at the Pharisee's house, so she brought with her an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Now, we don't know, a lot of people confuse this with the anointing at Bethany or with Mary Magdalene. It's neither of those. This is a, a separate incident that's only in the Gospel of Luke. The other Gospel writers don't have this specific incident here. And so we don't know much about this woman, but here's what we do know. She is a woman of the city. She's a prostitute. She's a harlot. She's, uh uh-oh, when she comes in the room, everybody kind of looks around and thinks, uh, probably some people in the room going, I don't know her, really, I don't. I don't. That's what I'm thinking. But here's what I do know. Some of y'all didn't laugh at that. Here's what I do know. I do know that this wasn't the first time this woman and Jesus had encountered each other. That is very clear from this text that it would be impossible for this to be their first meeting. This woman had encountered Jesus' ministry sometime previous to this meeting, and it had radically altered her life. This woman, this prostitute, this harlot, had encountered the grace of God, and it had moved her. It had changed her. It had transformed her. And so she comes in, and she's crying. She's weeping. She's wailing. Tears are flooding from her face. Why? Well, just think about who she is. She's crying for for the guilt of, of poor decisions, for the condemnation that she lives in. I mean, this woman, undoubtedly, everywhere she goes, every place she enters, as she walks down the street, goes to the market, goes to the well, people judge her, people condemn her, they stare at her long, they look at the way she's dressed, they whisper in each other's ears. I mean, it's not exactly the way that you want to live your life. But you know what? When we get in situations, many of you know, many of you have come out of circumstances in your life where you got in this pattern of sin. And I can tell you something, having grown up in an atheist family who was very, very poor and very unconventional, and you know, I've got two younger brothers who are mixed. And let me tell you something, when you walk in the store, people stare. I've got a severely retarded younger brother. I know what it's like to walk around and be, be mocked be looked at, be stared at. I can remember time and time again, sitting in the car, not wanting to go in somewhere because I knew everyone was going to stare at me and I was just tired of it. And you just imagine sometimes you're in Walmart, you're somewhere and someone comes in and they're pushing their child in a wheelchair or there's some situation or some circumstance. And you know, you understand with our children, but why is it that we feel the need to stop and stare? Why? What's wrong with us? Why don't we stop and say a word of compassion? Why don't, why don't we gracious more often? We're so quick to judge. We're so quick to look at people by their outward exterior and just immediately come to our own conclusions. And this woman had lived her life condemned, but she met a Savior. And she was weeping tears of joy. It was as if this boulder of guilt had been lifted off her back by the forgiveness of a Savior who had come into her life. And for the first time, someone had seen her, not for what she does, but for who she could be. He looked beyond her problems. We need to learn. We need to learn as a people to look past the outside. We need to realize that, that, that when, when we see single moms, we need to, we need to empathize with their struggle and, and realize that they need help. 
And we need to nurture them and help them. When we see people who are downtrodden and outcast, who, who have deformities or who don't dress like us or act like us or who are involved in gross immorality that happens to be on the outside, you know, when you see people walking through the store and you see a, a, maybe a, 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 a young couple like me and Lisa, young, young, real young. You see someone our age, that young, with a daughter who's pregnant. And you just, oh. And we just immediately stare and gawk and condemn. Some of you in this room, you, you, you're, you're amazing people of God and you're here, married, raising your family, but you had a child out of wedlock early on. So you've got a little family now, but you've got an older child and, and some, you know what this feels like. And maybe people in this room don't even know that's true of you because you're afraid of what they would think if they knew that. Shame on us. Shame on us. You see, we have such a tendency to see the grace of God as good enough to sort of cloak over our inward sin. But but it's just, there's some people that are just too far. There's some people that are just too, too, too bad, too far gone. But she doesn't find judgment or condemnation, no. She finds a loving Savior. And here's, here's what I want you to see. She comes prepared. She comes prepared. Isn't it interesting how often we come to worship totally unprepared? We come waltzing in here out of gas, run out, just sort of stumbling in, just trying to get to so we can get out of here and go to lunch or mow our grass or do whatever we got to do. And we're just kind of going through the motions. And here she comes. I mean, I don't know if she if she met Jesus a, a minute ago, an hour ago, a week ago, but I know this. She comes prepared. She wasn't just carrying around a flask of fragrant oil. This is probably the most valuable thing that she owned. She probably put this oil on herself or had it to make herself smell good so that men would want to pay her to have sex with her. And she's about to redeem what was once going to be used for something wicked into something good. She came prepared. And what I want you to see is we ought not walk in this place unprepared. We don't serve the kind of God you just roll in the door and you just hope, well, I don't know, you know, it's just another day. Listen, the more you begin to understand who Jesus is, the more we ought to walk in here expectant people, realizing He can do anything. That this represents an opportunity for God to radically change your life. Not someone else's life, your life and my life. Today, God can do that today, right here. That's why we need to approach worship. So here's a brand new, brand new believer prepared for worship. Verse 38, and so she stood at his feet behind him weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed him with fragrant oil. You know, in this culture, it was utterly, just completely, I don't even know what to, 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 I don't know how to draw your attention to how inappropriate it is in first century culture for a woman to let her hair down in public. It was so immodest that if a woman let her hair down in public, it was grounds for divorce. A man would divorce his wife if she did this. That's how immodest it is. Now, you just think about what your wife has to do in public for it to be grounds for divorce. I mean, you, you understand what I'm saying? That's how crazy this action is. And yet she does this. And she begins wiping his feet with this fragrant oil. Now, you know, my, my question when I read this is, well, why wasn't she anointing his head? Well, I don't think she thought she was worthy to anoint his head. I don't think she thought the oil was worthy to anoint the head of Jesus, or she would have. Because she's clearly come on a mission. She's come on a mission. Now look at verse 39. Then we begin to see what's really going on. And notice that up until verse 39, not a word has been spoken. I mean, Luke said, uh-oh, but nothing, has, it's been silence. They're sitting there eating. No one's talking. She comes in. Luke's kind of like writing down, uh-oh. And then this is going to be good. And then she starts, she's weeping. and She's anointing his feet with oil and kissing him. But no one said anything. Then the Pharisee begins to mutter to himself in verse 39. And he, the one who invited him, he spoke to himself saying, well, this man, if he were a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So two things I want to draw your attention to. Number one, 
He doesn't say this out loud. He says this to himself, which I think is hilarious because he's saying to himself, well, if this man's a prophet, two seconds later, God tells him what he's thinking. So guess that answered that question, right? I mean, he, you know, I mean, well, he knew what you were thinking, dummy. So I guess he knew something. The other thing I want you to notice is this phrase, what manner of woman? This just goes to show you the depravity of the wickedness and the judgmentalism of his heart. In other words, he's saying what kind of woman this is. I mean, this woman is disgusting. He's repulsed by this woman. If he knew what kind of woman was touching him, Simon was disgusted. This woman would never have entered Simon's house had Jesus not been in the room. Never. She knew she would never be welcome. She would be stoned. She would probably make him ceremonially unclean, and so it would have been a catastrophe. So that would have never happened. But because Jesus is there, she comes barging right in. Then verse 40. So Jesus begins to explain all this after just reading uh, Simon's mind and letting him know what's going on. In verse 40, Jesus answered and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. I mean, that can only be trouble. Can it just only be trouble? I'm Simon, i got something to say to you. Simon should have said, Teacher, please no." But he doesn't. He just jumps right in. Say it. So here goes Jesus. Well, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. And one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii is simply a day's wage. So don't get confused over the amounts. And, and when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave both of them. Tell me now, Simon, therefore, which of them will love him more? Now, the key to understanding what Jesus is saying is the phrase they had nothing with which to repay. Don't get hung up on the fact that uh, one owed more than the other because that's really not the point of what Jesus is saying. Yes, one owed a certain number of denarii and one owed much more, but the key is neither one could pay. Both debtors represent sinners and no sinner has the ability to pay their debt. And that's what Jesus is illustrating here. One debtor represents Simon. The other debtor represents the woman. But according to whose scale you're looking at, that's according to which one's which. Because Simon would see himself as the small debtor and the woman as the big debtor. But I'm not sure that's how Jesus would see it. But it's irrelevant because the point is neither one has any money to pay back. So notice just simple things about the gospel. The Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen? Now, there's no mention of how far they've fallen short, is there? Because it doesn't matter. It's kind of like falling out of an airplane without a parachute. I mean, one guy's going, well, I, I'm only falling from 5,000 feet and you're falling from 50,000 feet. Big deal. You're both splat. It doesn't matter. So whether you owe five denarii or 50 denarii, if you got zip to pay it back, you're in trouble. That's what you need to see here. And so there's utterly no capacity to repay the sin, just like you, just like me. Verse 42, the last part, Jesus says, Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and says, I suppose... Notice, he's not really jumping off on this. He's just kind of leaving the door open. He says, well, I suppose that it's the one who forgave more. And he said to him, well, you've rightly judged. Now, you need to understand that this is not teaching as some uh, maniac pulpiteers might lead people to, to think. That you should sin more in order to love more. That this is not at all what God is, is talking about. What Jesus is teaching is that there's great value in sin consciousness, not in committing sin, but being conscious of our sin. Jesus is trying to draw this truth in that we need to be conscious of our sin. That's what we need to do, first of all. Now, we don't need to be conscious of it and start quantifying it. We just need to be conscious that it's there. In other words, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, this is a faithful and worthy saying of all acceptance. He says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the chief. Now, do you think about this passage of Scripture for a second? It, does it make any sense that Paul's bragging about his sinfulness here? Well, no. In other words, why is this here? And why would this saying be faithful and worthy? 
if it were not to illustrate the great value of being conscious of the fact that you're a sinner. That's why Paul says that. That's why you and me need to be reminded that we are sinners and it doesn't matter how you want to sort of add up or multiply or divide up your sin. You got zip in the bank to pay for it. You can't pay that debt. That's what Jesus is trying to draw home here. And when you start quantifying sin, when you start saying, well, I may be bad, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so, then you are moving into dangerous territory. Because a bunch of broke folks who have a debt ought not be pointing fingers at anybody else. If you can't pay your debt, why are you worried about someone else's debt? 44. Then... He turned to the woman. Now notice what it says in verse 44. Jesus turns to the woman, but he said to Simon. So he's speaking to Simon, but he's looking at the woman. I mean, I love Luke. He's so descriptive. And Jesus says, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. And she washed my feet with her tears and she wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. But whom little, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Think with me for a moment. Back in Luke chapter 5, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners under repentance. And you know, when you just think about that for a moment, well, it's Jesus is saying there's certain people He didn't come to call. Now that's a, that's a big statement. Because we know that the Bible says Jesus came for the sins of the world. And that, you know, it's, it's God's hope that all men would come to Him in salvation. But God understands. God's economy operates such that when you are righteous in and of yourself. You put up a force field against the gospel. You separate yourself from God. God knows the proud from afar, the Bible says. He has no time. He has no patience. He has nothing to do with those who come in their own righteousness. Just doesn't work. The gospel doesn't fit with self-righteousness. It doesn't operate in the realm of self-righteousness. It just can't work that way. 1 John 1, eight says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Verse 48, then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table, there was other people there dining uh, with him, began to say to themselves, now who is this who forgives sins? So Jesus, he answers them. Well, let me tell you who it is. And he tells the lady, he says, woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Now, let me, just, uh, let me just talk you through a couple of things. First of all, here's what I really need you to know before we get to application. I need you to understand she's not forgiven because she loves much. She's not forgiven because she loves much. She loves much because she's forgiven much. It's very, very important for you to understand she does not get forgiven due to her love. That would be work salvation. That would be you earning your way to God. That is not what this is teaching. It's not at all what's here. It's very, very clear. The Bible says in 1 John four nineteen that we love Him because He first loved us. Now, let me just prove that to you so you can see this. I want you to mark this down in your Bible. I want you to see in verse 42, the second half of verse 42, the Bible says, Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more. You see the word will? You know why? Because forgiveness precedes the expression of love. Number one. Number two, I want you to notice in verse 47, where the Bible says, but whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. You see that? Forgiveness first, love second. Because I know there's a tendency in our hearts to think, well, you know, we just need to love God a lot and He'll, he'll forgive us. No. No, no. Forgiveness comes and then love is a response to forgiveness. And I want you to notice in verse 50, the third thing that's just painfully obvious here. Jesus says, your faith, your faith, not anything you've done. Your faith has saved past tense. Past tense. In other words, you're saved and it's your faith that did that. Now go in peace. Okay, so I don't want any confusion 
about, about how this operates here. This is great love in response to great forgiveness. Forgiveness always precedes true love. You can't, you, you don't, you don't just start loving God in your own flesh and in your own strength and then somehow God's going to forgive you. It doesn't work like that. You, you can't love God unless He loves you first. It's the forgiveness that drives the woman to love Him so much. So the gospel just makes this so painfully clear. Now let me just quickly lay a couple things down for you, alright? I want you to see two main ways that you and I run a great, great, unbelievable danger of treating Jesus Christ with contempt. All of us. All of us. Way number one. This Pharisee approached Jesus with half-hearted worship. Let me show you this, hypocr- this, this uh, hypocritical worship. In verse 44, 45, and 46, what you see is that then he turned to the, from the woman, he turned to Simon, he said, you entered... You, I entered your house, you gave me no water. You gave me no kiss, you didn't anoint my head with oil. In other words, when Jesus entered the house, in the beginning, before this whole thing with the woman even started, this Pharisee held Jesus in contempt. He didn't worship Him. He was supposed to wash His feet. He'd been walking on a dirty road. It was just simple custom. It would be like you coming to my house and me not even answering the door or shaking your hand or welcoming you in or taking your coat or anything, just letting you just wander in on your own. That's the way He treated Jesus when He came in. He treated Him with contempt. Simon invites Jesus over to dinner. That's interesting to me. He had Jesus sitting in his living room. He, he, he had the Son of God. He's in the presence of the God of the universe and he completely misses it. Is it possible for you and I to be that close to Jesus, for Jesus to be working around us, for him to be doing things in the church we attend, in the people that we know, and for us to completely miss it? Is it possible to be that close and to miss him? Is it possible for us to come in here and just bring half-hearted worship? Come in here. We haven't washed His feet. We come in here and sing. Shame on you. Let me tell you something. You come in. You sing. You're amazed by His love. You haven't cracked your Bible. You haven't been on your face. You haven't wept any tears. And you're amazed by what you're not amazed. If you were amazed, you would respond to the way He loves you. Let's be honest. Half-hearted worship is repulsive to the Lord. But let me show you how God responds to this repulsive worship. He gives them another chance. This is what amazes me about this. This isn't just the first time. Because don't you see that when the woman begins to worship Jesus, that's Simon's chance to go, wait a minute. See, he came in half-heartedly and he made some mistakes initially and that's true. But don't you think that when the woman began worshiping Jesus and, and, and wiping his feet with her tears and pouring this oil on his feet, don't you think at that moment Simon could have, should have seen that and, and just been convicted in his heart and reminded of who this is and thought, oh, wait a minute. Lord, I have treated you with contempt. I made some mistakes initially. See, he had a second chance. He blew that too. Because then he went further. And he said, he negated who God is. He said, if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman's touching him. You know something? What if a hooker came in here this morning? What What if a tramp of the street came in here this morning? And what if during the worship, when we were singing Amazed by His Love, what if she came scantily dressed right off the street, having had a big weekend out on the town, and she came rolling in here and right up the aisle and just fell down on her face at the altar and began wailing over God right there, asking God to to, to save her, just repenting. Maybe somewhere way back in her past she had been touched by the gospel. And she comes in. I wonder how many people in here would start whispering. Or pointing. I mean, I hope no one would. Would she be welcome here? And in other words, here's it. Or would we just immediately attack her with, well, you know, we need to, you need to change the way you dress. You need, you can't wear your hair like that. You can't, you know, all these other external things. Or would we really minister to her heart? She's not like us. 
We got a problem. Look it, look, look. Look in the mirror. We all look the same. You're telling me there's no lost hookers in Gulfport? There's no drug addicts, homeless people. I mean, let's just start easy. There's no black people, Chinese people. Hello? Are we cutting off here? I'm just asking a question. Are we open to who Jesus says He is? That's my question. Because if you're not, you're bringing half-hearted worship. You're coming in here. You're rolling in here. You're not really interested in who He is. You're interested in who you want Him to be. You're interested in, is the music going to be the way you want it? Is things going to be, the temperature going to be the way you want it? Am I going to shut up in time for it to be close enough for your time to do what you want to do? All the things are going to be the way you want. That's what we're concerned about sometimes. Jesus is repulsed by that. Now let me tell you something. I woke up at 2 o'clock this morning. Simon. 2 o'clock this morning, I woke up wide awake. And I just had to repent. Because let me tell you what happened to me yesterday. See, I'm not standing up here telling you that I got... I mean, for three weeks, this has been grinding on me. Yesterday, Lisa and I ran into somebody we hadn't seen in a decade. As soon as we walked up, I was thinking he looked familiar, but I didn't, I didn't know. And he said, Lisa, how are you? And we were like, hey. And then he told us his name. And uh, it all came back together. He, we hadn't seen him in a decade. He spent a, a decade uh, in severe drug addiction. And his whole life went down the drain, got wrapped up in homosexual lifestyle also. I mean, it just his whole life fell apart. His, his, uh, he told us he's been taking care of his mom. She died of Parkinson's, so it was five years with all this. It was just horrible. I mean, it was just, I mean, you look at him, he looks like he aged a hundred years. just terrible. We talked a few minutes and we walked away. You know what I thought? I thought, man, that guy looked bad. It's bad. I didn't share the gospel with him. I didn't say, hey, he even asked me, he said, Tony, what are you doing now? I said, I'm a pastor. He's, you know, kind of, whoa, the same thing I always get. And then, you know, we talked, and, and, you know, I said, yeah, I'm a pastor now. And we talked a minute, and then away I went. And then, you know what? I didn't invite him to come to church. I mean, I didn't consciously say, well, I'm not going to invite him to church. But here's the thing. In my heart at 2 o'clock in the morning, before God, I'm Simon that I just run into people that are just seem so far away. They're so gone. Everything's been so wrong for so long that I know that if they come in here, everything's just going to be wrong and I don't know if anything can ever work and it's so easy to just think that and that's a lie. And shame on me for that. And I had to repent to God. I can't stand up here and preach this text and act like I, I got all this together. I struggle just like you. I struggle with it. I'm comfortable with you. I mean, look, I'm, I'm the shepherd here. You know what I want? I want things to go smooth. You start bringing prostitutes in here, it ain't going to go smooth. That's wrong. It's wrong. Second thing I want you to see that repulses Jesus is refusing to love the people He loves. We cannot do this. This Pharisee treated this woman with utter contempt. He despised her in his heart. He was embarrassed by her worship. He was no doubt embarrassed by the other people that were in the room that this was happening. All he could think about is all the rumors that were going to spread around town because this prostitute had come into his living room, let her hair down, and anointed Jesus' feet right there in his living room. What, what a horrible thing. Wait until the other Pharisees heard all that. How ashamed it was going to be. You know, Philip Yancey, he, he, there, he wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew, and in it, he's, this is a quote from his book. He says, Jesus was a friend of sinners. They liked being around him. They longed for his company. Meanwhile, the legalists found him shocking and revolting. What was Jesus' secret that we have lost? 
Why don't sinners like being around us? Somehow we have created a community of respectability in the church. The down and out who flocked to Jesus when He lived on earth no longer feel welcome. How did Jesus, the only perfect person in history, manage to attract the notoriously imperfect? And what keeps us from following in His steps today? Here's my great fear. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, that not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That, that people are going to call Him Lord, and they're going to say, well, God, did we not prophesy in Your name? Did we not cast out demons in Your name? Did we not perform many wonders in Your name? And He's going to declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I am utterly convinced the church of the United States of America is filled with people who will fall into this category. The prophet Amos says the same thing in the Old Testament where there was a group of religious people. In fact, really the Israelites, God's people, had become pretentious in their, in their religion and began to elevate themselves above other people and they were negating the poor and they were taking away justice and they weren't caring for those who were downtrodden and the orphans around them. And God said to them, and here's the shocking thing, and they were literally hoping for the coming of the Lord. This is so crazy. And I just think, God, may please don't let it be us. Hoping for the coming of the day of the Lord. And here's what God said to him. He said, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Woe to you. For what good is that day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. That is a fearful statement. Please don't miss the gospel. The gospel is... It's Galatians 3, 27, where the Bible says, For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, put on Christ. Therefore, you're neither Jew nor Greek. You're neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. That's what the gospel says. It's the love of God that unites a group of worthless sinners who had no opportunity, no ability to pay their debt, but Jesus paid it for us. And if we grabbed a hold of that, if we understood that, we would never come in here empty handed we would never come in here with half-hearted worship and we would not be condemning of those who are in such desperate need of the lord the bible says in first john 4 9 this is how god showed his love among us he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him this is love not that we love god that but he loved us and sent his son for the atoning sacrifice of our sins dear friends since god so loved us we ought to love who one another that's who we ought to love See, we are like the Pharisees when we forget we're like the woman. You understand me? That's our danger this morning, folks. We're just like Simon when we forget. No, we're just like the woman. That every person in this room right now who can hear me, if you are saved, you are just like this woman. The day you got saved, you might as well have been a harlot from the street. It wouldn't have mattered. You couldn't pay your debt. When did it get old to pay, to, to be filled with graciousness and gratitude and, and, and come and pour your heart out to Him? You see what I mean? But when we begin to get prideful and comfortable in our salvation and begin to take for granted the, who we are and what we do and that we know things and that we belong to things and that we participate in things, and it's self-righteousness. So there's four principles, three questions. And a couple prayers I have and we're done. Number one. The first principle is this, the Pharisee. He looks, looks like a lot of people, a lot of preachers in many churches today. Please don't deflect that onto somebody else. It's for me and it's for you. Principle number two. This text utterly shatters the notion that anyone can be too far away from God for salvation. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yesterday doesn't matter. His sacrifice is enough for you. He loves sinners and tax collectors. He loves the worst of the worst. He loves you. And if you're here this morning and you have always felt like you long to be saved, but that God wouldn't accept you or receive you because of what you've done or who you've been listening, let this text just 
just explode that myth in your head. Third principle, our gratitude towards Christ ought to overwhelm any care that we have about what other people think. It ought to overwhelm it. Why are we so worried about what other people think? Have you ever sat there on a Sunday morning and maybe in the, in the midst of preaching just felt like just kneeling down right there where you are and just just praying at, and making an altar right there at your seat, but, but you wouldn't do it because you, you thought people would look at you. I remember the first thing I did when I became the student pastor was I, I went next door and I, uh, first Wednesday night, I told everybody, I said, now let's get one thing straight. The altar is never closed. If I'm up here preaching, you come. If God's leading you to the altar, you come. It's not close. You don't, there's no specific time. I'm not God. If He touches your heart, if, some, if God sh- tells you something, you might hear something I didn't say to anybody else. I might not even have said it. You just heard it. I don't know. But if God calls you to the altar, you come. And don't worry about what other people think. Come. Respond to Him. Shame on us for caring so much about the fear of man. It just obliterates our worship of God. And one day... We're going to be sorry for that. Fourth principle. Can a person who has genuinely been forgiven fail to love? No. Some of you in this room, you've never been genuinely forgiven. You don't love unlovable people. Right now, you're mad at me for what I've said. According to the Bible that I have right here before me and the same one that you have before you, if you've been genuinely forgiven, you'll love. You won't always love perfectly. You won't go without making mistakes. There'll be down times and there'll be up times, but you'll be a person who loves if you've been genuinely forgiven. Three questions. Does your life revolved around your worship of Jesus? You know, that's what ministered to my heart about this lady. Her whole life, evidently, just it, it really did. Some of you in this room, you mean so much to me, and the reason why is because I thought of you when I wrote that question. Because I, I, I know your lives and your whole life revolves around your worship of Jesus Christ. And I thank God for you. You mean so much to me. It's such an encouragement to my heart. Because I could get down with a passage like this. I could get bummed out. But there's some of you in this room, your whole life, you, you, your vacation, your job, the way you spend your money, the way you raise your kids, everything you do revolves around your Worship of Jesus Christ. Thank God for you. May we all strive to be there. Does your life reveal that you know Jesus' character and His call on your life to servitude? Not just, you know, do you think you know about God? Have you been to church ten times? But do you know His character? Last question. How conscious are you of just how heinous your sin is? And that it required God to slaughter His Son in order to forgive you. So here's my prayers for this place. I will pray this for us as a people. That God would reveal the truth to us about our worship. Number two, I will pray that God will reveal to us how we can love people especially unbelievers, in a more tangible and real way. I will pray that this church would continue to become an ambassador to the world for Jesus Christ, showing mercy and love to all people. And finally, I will pray that unbelievers will see in you and I a genuine difference that will cause them to seek us out. That is my prayer for this place. Let's stand and bow our heads, close our eyes.
Father, we come before you, Lord, and confessing, God, that we will struggle. Any honest person here struggles to just reconcile all that you've just spoken to us, Lord. But God, first, we just want to come humbly before you and say, God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that his sacrifice was enough for every person in this room, Lord. And God, for everyone in this room who is a a child of God, who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ and received forgiveness, none of us had any ability to pay that debt. None of us. And so may we worship you in this time as if we recognize, Lord, our helplessness and our dependence on you for salvation. All that you've done. God, I pray for those in this room who are apart from you. But God, this morning they've heard the good news. The good news that you're enough for them, Lord. And that there's no one who's too far away from you for salvation, God. There, there's no one who's so beat down, so condemned. No one who's been stared at so long, who's been mocked, who's been just dehumanized by our day. So much that you cannot restore them, Lord. Father, I think of the the phrase in the 23rd Psalm that you, O Lord, restore our souls. Father, will you restore the souls of some, some men and women and young people in here this morning? Can we truly be amazed this morning at your love, God? Oh, Father, help us not to take for granted the opportunity we have before you now, Lord. God, thank you. Thank you, Lord. God, maybe there's some here today who need a church home. They need a place to come and plant their family. God, I pray that this morning they would lay aside any fear of of anything and they would just come and come to me or Pastor Donnie and say, we want to plant our life here. We want to grow here. And and we don't come perfect. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord because none of us did. Come broken and let Him heal you and fix you. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord is your Savior, just think for a moment about this woman. I don't know how many years she lived her life in misery and guilt and shame and hopelessness. But I know in an instant everything changed. And the same can be true for you this morning. That right now, this morning, the God of the universe will forgive all your sins. He will wrap His loving arms around you and He will walk with you as you just weep at His feet, as you just wipe the tears from your face with the hair of your head, as you pour out all that you have once held so valuable onto Him and say, God, thank You for what You've done. Oh Lord, I can't wait to meet this woman someday in heaven. God, the testimony that she has. Father, will you come and do what only you can do in Jesus' name? Amen.